Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is episode 177, The Road to 830. This show is free and independent due to member support, and as thanks for helping keep the community going, I offer members-only content, including extra episodes and rough transcripts. If you're interested in supporting the show and helping us out, you can do so over at thebritishhistorypodcast.com. And thank you very much to Robert, David, and Paul for contributing already. Have you joined us on Twitter yet? It's really easy to do. Just open up your Twitter app and add at British Podcast. You can even do it on your run. Though, if you're listening while driving, you might want to wait until you're parked. Safety first. Now, joining us on social media will give you access to the community, which is awesome. But it will also help out the show, since it will not only help us find new listeners, but it will also help me convince my father that this is a real job and not just a weird hobby. So, if you wouldn't mind, please head over to Twitter and follow at British Podcast. Thanks. Now, last episode, I gave you a forest view of where we're going, and roughly who these Viking raiders were, as well as the scale of the impact that they will have upon Europe. And it really is something to behold. The Viking Age isn't very long, but Europe hasn't seen this level of rapid cultural, economic, and political change since the fall of the Western Roman Empire. Not even Charlemagne had the kind of far-reaching impact that the northern kingdoms and raiders will have. So this week, I'd like to talk a bit about where we're at in the story and what's going on on the continent, because the truth of it is that this information is vitally important for understanding what's going on. And the events across the channel will have a direct impact on the political, military, and cultural future of Britain. All too often, history, especially the history of this period, is discussed in a vacuum. The presenter typically draws from one or maybe two sources, they focus on one or two major characters, and then they narrate events with little to no awareness of cause and effect. This is history effectively dumbed down, more of a legend than anything else. And it isn't just the History Channel and amateur history fans like podcasters who are guilty of committing this sin. It happens on documentaries and books with expert writers and guests. And that makes me think that it's less a matter of education, knowledge, and research ability, and rather, it's a consequence of a firmly held belief that everyday audiences are stupid and can't comprehend complexity. Under this belief, it becomes common sense to keep the full story in the ivory tower of academia, while weaving simple, easy-to-follow myths for everyone else, out of a fear that the audience is only looking to be entertained, not educated. It drives me crazy, as you might have noticed. And it's something that I push back against with the BHP as much as I can, because I think that people can understand these things. And more importantly, I think they want to learn the real story. You are proof of it. Because common wisdom is that no one cares about the heptarchy, and that no one will ever care about it because it's too complex. But you guys handled the heptarchy like champs, and apparently loved it because you're buying t-shirts featuring jokes about the sons of Ida. So yeah, we're going to continue bucking the common wisdom that says to simplify this story into an easy-to-follow myth. And the real story of Britain during the Viking Age is tied inextricably to the rest of Europe. So we're going to talk about some of the major events that are occurring, and I'll be reminding you of them as we go forward, and hopefully this will give you a fuller understanding of what exactly happened here. As the Viking Age began, Europe was finally returning from the absolute clusterfuck that was the collapse of the Western Roman Empire. 
Keep in mind that the culture and economy of Europe was so thoroughly boned that it took literally centuries to get back to a level of complexity that justified having a moneyed economy. An economy, by the way, that we had before Rome even expanded into our lands. This also meant that for the first time in a very long time, thanks to this increase in wealth, the Europeans had something worth taking. And it just so happened that in Scandinavia, there was a culture that rather enjoyed taking stuff from other people. And thanks to technological advances, their ships had the dual ability to both sail across the North Sea and also sail up rivers. By the late 8th and early 9th century, their raiders had made it clear that they could not only strike virtually any coastal town in Northern Europe, they could also reach many towns far inland, so long as they were located on rivers. That was a huge problem for Europe all on its own. And then Charlemagne decided to see what happens when you kick a hornet's nest. See, the thing is that initially, the Norse cultures seemed to have been motivated purely by the accumulation of goods and treasure. Then Charlemagne got into a territorial and religious war with the kingdom of the Saxons, just off his northeastern border. And a little while into that war, when thousands of unarmed Saxons had surrendered to him, he coldly executed them. This broke more than a few norms of Dark Age European warfare, and it seems to have freaked out the other neighboring pagan cultures, because following that event, we see a proliferation of defensive tactics, both in the form of spiritual charms and also material military defenses. They were building borders. And then Charlie marched his army right to the Danish border in an apparent show of force. Now this, it turns out, was a mistake. And not long afterwards, we see King Gudfred of the Danes, as well as his fleet of 200 ships, give Charlemagne the business. The Franks lost a good portion of their Frisian lands, and Charlemagne was forced to buy off potential raiders in order to avoid further catastrophes. Yeah, that's right. Emperor Charles the Great, who had the favor of the Pope himself, got his clock cleaned by those barbarian pagan savages to the north. So right there we're seeing glimpses of what's to come. There's strength in Scandinavia, and they were starting to discover it. And there was wealth in Europe, and those raiders were starting to discover that, too. And let's be real, these Vikingers were a big problem. Even after King Gudfred stood down, Europe was still facing a crisis. And two of the major cultures that caught the brunt of it, the Anglo-Saxons and the Franks, dealt with it in very different ways. In the early years of the raids, so from the famous raid at Lindisfarne in 793 to where we are now in 830, the English appear to have been mostly concerned with the Vikings' ability to strike inland towns using rivers. And so during this period, they developed a beautifully simple defensive system. They began building bridges. It was a solid solution to that specific problem. Not only did it enable easy passage across the rivers, but Olaf and his friends would either have to land their boats and hoof it, which would give the warbands time to assemble, or they'd just need to turn around. So the inland lightning strikes were effectively shut down. And it's probably why the Vikingers generally stuck to the coastal locations of England. Generally. The Franks across the Channel, however, don't appear to have wanted to abandon their coastal towns. So starting with Charlemagne, they responded by creating fleets to patrol the English Channel. And this worked for most areas. 
but not for particularly exposed regions like Frisia, which is why King Gudfred of the Danes was able to cause so much trouble. But the end result was that as the Frankish Coast Guard got into full swing, the Vikingers had a harder time reaching the coasts of England. It should come as no surprise then that we start to see them taking the northern route and attacking the Hebrides and Ireland instead. I mean, why go into a dangerously patrolled region when there were other targets available? The Vikingers weren't foolhardy maniacs. They were opportunists who were trying to get the most bang for their bloodshed buck. And we'll see that demonstrated repeatedly as this story continues. But here, in 830, things were about to get worse for the Anglo-Saxons. And mostly, it was the fault of the Franks. And right now, my English listeners are loving this, since glaring at the French is a national pastime. But here's what happened. So, Emperor Louis the Pious, the son of Charlemagne, had a wife. But in 818, she died, leaving him a widower with a few children. The emperor's counselors insisted that he needed to remarry. And so, a little over a year after his wife's death, Louis married Judith of Bavaria, who was a noblewoman from, and this is going to surprise you, Bavaria. Anyway, they got married, and not long afterwards, they had a son. Charles. But if you're expecting this to be like a heartwarming lifetime movie about how, given time, a broken heart can be healed, think again. This is Francia, and the Frankish court was a place where your heart was more likely to get cut out than healed. For example, a few years earlier, Bernard, who was Louis's nephew, launched a rebellion, and when Louis defeated him, he had his nephew's eyes cut out. So we're not really looking at a sentimental and romantic person here who needs to learn to love again. We're looking at imperial politics. And there is a problem here. The new bride, Queen Judith, was concerned about succession. Well, that's not entirely true. The succession issue had already been handled a few years earlier, and it was declared that Louis's first son, Lothar, would inherit the empire, and his other sons would be given Bavaria, Aquitaine, and some surrounding lands. But as I said, there was a problem. Because that was then. And this is now. And now, Emperor Louis had a new wife, and a new child. And Judith wanted her son to be on the line of succession. And not just on the line of succession. She wanted Charles to be the heir to the empire. Now, oh, sure, the other boys could have some lands if they must, but Charles should be Emperor Louis's heir, not Lothar. And consider the personal aspects of this. Not only were Lothar and his brothers undoubtedly dealing with grief, since their mother had only recently died, but this new foreign stepmother was actually younger than Lothar. And that's gotta be weird. Then, as a final twist of the knife, she was openly pushing to disinherit her stepsons and have the infant Charles be declared the new heir to the empire. She was behaving like a Disney villain. But despite that, Emperor Louis conceded. Lothar was out, and Charles was in. And that, inevitably, led to civil war in 830. Normally, this would just be an interesting side note. Maybe something to include in a members episode. But this had a devastating impact on our story. See, for the most part, following those early first few strikes, we haven't had all that many recorded Viking attacks in England, at least not compared to what's coming. 
and that's likely thanks to the Frankish Coast Guard that was started by Charlemagne. Even after Charlemagne died, the Coast Guard continued and was maintained by his son Louis. But all that ended when this internal dynastic conflict, which plagued Louis' rule for most of the rest of his life, caused the empire to fall into civil war. Suddenly, they had bigger fish to fry, and the coastal defenses were weakened substantially. So in 830, the door to England was dramatically flung open to the Vikingers, thanks, in no small part, to Frankish dynastic politicking. And speaking of England, let's cover what's been happening there in the lead-up to the catastrophe of 830. This was an incredibly unfortunate time for the Anglo-Saxons to lose their Frankish buffer. Because right about here, the Anglo-Saxon kingdoms were hitting a bit of a rough spot. The prosperity of the earlier years, especially with the market towns such as London which, were collapsing rapidly in the late 8th and early 9th century. You know, we haven't spoken about London Witch and London in the show yet, so let me give you the bare bones of what you need to know right now. London Witch is not London. It's near it, but they aren't the same thing. London refers to the old walled settlement, what we now call the City of London. And for a while, London had fallen into disrepair. It seems that few wanted to, or were able to, live in the old Roman walls of London. Conversely, London Witch, which was the settlement that grew up outside of those walls, had begun to boom thanks to flourishing trade. So the real power and wealth in the area for most of the 8th century was actually London Witch, not the city of London. And I know, looking at the way things are right now, that seems crazy, but that's how it was. Then, starting in the late 8th and early 9th century, the manufacturing and industrial activity at London Witch substantially reduced in scale. Sites that saw significant activity in the 8th century were now being abandoned, or being converted into agriculture. And we see the construction of defensive ditches being built in the early 9th century. And it wasn't just London Witch. Construction in Hamwich, which is modern-day Southampton, halted entirely during this period and there was a general decline of all activity in the market, and it eventually became a virtual ghost town by the late 800s. We also see a decline and sometimes outright abandonment of smaller seasonal trading locations. This happened all over the place, and defensible sites began to become the focus of urban trading life. Anglo-Saxon life was going through a period of reorganization. But while markets like London Witch were taking a hit, this wasn't a period of universal squalor and poverty for the Anglo-Saxons. There was still money to be made, and those of means still found the opportunity to spend money on art and other non-military aspects of life. The citizens of Canterbury were already forming into fraternities and corporations, and actually, we see them buying sculptures and other artistic works. In fact, we see an impressive degree of flourishing urban life there, and it's possible that, due to the collapse of sites like London Witch and Hamwich, Canterbury may have become the center of urban and economic life for the South. And you might be wondering why. But something to keep in mind is that walled towns, such as Canterbury and London, very well might have become attractive locations for those who had means to acquire land there. After all, we do see an increase in development even as London Witch fell out of favor. So those old walled towns like London do appear to have been making a comeback. And that does make sense, 
because with the threat of Viking attacks, those walls suddenly became very useful. So culturally, we're beginning to see a shift. And politically, there's a lot going on as well. So let's give you a bird's eye view of that too. When we last left off in our main story, Mercia was only just starting to recover from a disastrous few years. The East Anglians had been killing Mercian kings as fast as they could, until King Wiglaf of Mercia decided to take a break and just stay the hell out of the East. Which worked great, until his neighbors to the south, under King Egbert of Wessex, invaded and ousted him from power. So things in Mercia were not going all that well in the late 820s. However, less than a year after King Wiglaf was exiled, he returned with a sizable force at his command, taking advantage of the fact that King Egbert of Wessex was already in the west fighting against the Welsh, and he defeated the West Saxons that were controlling his lands. Something to keep in mind, by the way, is that King Egbert of Wessex had strong ties with Francia, and Francia, at this point, was up to its eyeballs with problems. So another thing that might have helped King Wiglaf's return to power may have been the fact that King Egbert lost Frankish support. That is just a theory that scholars have floated out there, and it hasn't been conclusively proven, but it does seem like it's entirely possible. And so this is another reason why talking about what's going on across the continent really matters, because it's entirely possible that Louis' problems at home might have caused Mercia to make a comeback here. And that's one of the big points to make here. Mercia, under King Wiglaf, had just regained its independence. But it also was incredibly weakened. This was not the same kingdom that Offa had commanded. Its borders had shrunk, and there was no doubt a great deal of instability, considering that they had lost multiple kings in battle in a mere handful of years. Things in the Midlands were dealing with the sophomore slump, or is it the freshman 15? I can never remember. The point is that Mercia wasn't looking good. But even with their losses and significant setbacks, Mercia still held London and would continue to do so until a group of foreigners chucked them out. So that's where Mercia is. Meanwhile, in the north, we see King Ainred producing an era of Northumbrian stability that hasn't been seen in an age. And that's great. But... They weren't the kingdom they once were either. By and large, Northumbria was still mostly busy licking their wounds and just trying to reorganize. And then we have King Egbert of Wessex, the guy who briefly kicked Wiglaf out of power. And he's the person that we should be paying the most attention to in this era. King Egbert of Wessex was one of the most successful West Saxon leaders to date. Already, we've seen that he was effective on the battlefield. He defeated the Cornish in 815. He fought them again along with the men of Devon in 825. He defeated and slaughtered the Mercians on that same year. He deposed and conquered Mercia in 829, and then we're told somewhat dubiously that he also took his army and demanded the submission of the Northumbrians while he was at it. This man was a warlike king, and he was very good at it. But we've seen other warlike kings in the past, and many of them have gone on to see their accomplishments fade and diminish over time. But King Egbert was different. And we can see that in how his kin, starting with his son Aethelwulf, and then his grandsons, Aethelbald, Aethelbert, Aethelred, and Alfred, would dominate the throne of Wessex. Ultimately, that would be Egbert's true accomplishment. Not his military successes, though they were quite good. 
but rather the degree of dynastic control that he was developing. And it was one that hasn't been seen in Wessex since the days of Cutha. So, that raises a question. How did he do it? What made Egbert different from all those other West Saxon kings? Hell, what made him different from almost all the Anglo-Saxon kings in general? Well, to start with, Egbert was one of the most well-educated English rulers of his age. He had spent three years in the court of Charlemagne because he was forced into exile back in the days of Offa. And during that period, Charlemagne's court would have been a bit like a school to the Anglo-Saxon Aethling. It would have been nearly impossible for Egbert to have missed the lessons on the duties and responsibilities of Carolingian rule. And it's clear from how Egbert reorganized Wessex that he was a very good student. Now, studying this area of history can be a little bit confusing because most of the Anglo-Saxon kingdoms arranged their subjects into a cascading hierarchy and used the same terminology for their positions within that hierarchy. So ealdormen, thanes, churls, that sort of thing. So it's tempting to assume that all the titles meant the same thing for all the different kingdoms. But that is not the case. At least, not once Egbert got involved. While Wessex did use the same names for nobles and officials, the actual function of those classes began to look different in his court. The best way to illustrate this is to explain how most Anglo-Saxon kingdoms worked, and then explain how Wessex under Egbert was arranged. Let's take Mercia as our example, because Mercia was a big kingdom, it was right on the cusp of holding almost all of England before it collapsed into infighting, and in order to maintain the level of control it had under kings like Offa, it needed to be heavily organized. So here's how they did it. You might remember for the longest time that Mercia under kings like Penda would fight and defeat a kingdom, and then just let them keep their rulers, and even often their own lands. When they started to expand and truly conquer kingdoms, they still generally allowed newly acquired territory to be kept by their rulers. Those rulers just had to answer to the king of Mercia. In essence, they were forming a hegemony, and it was a system that enabled the kings of Mercia to take a hands-off approach to their foreign subjects, preferring to rule at a distance through puppet kings instead. It also allowed them to create a system of buffer kingdoms. For example, if Poas was looking to cause some trouble, the frontline defenses would initially need to be handled by their subjects, the Huissa. The other benefit was that by allowing the defeated dynasty to stay in power, they were incentivized to lay down their arms rather than fighting to the death. This wasn't a matter of King Unferth having to win or die trying. He could surrender and continue to live his life in pretty much the same way he'd always been, but now he'd be Elderman on Firth and he'd owe taxes to the King of Mercia. So overall, it was a pretty good plan, and it was why it was rare to see direct rule imposed by Mercia upon a defeated kingdom. Consequently, even as the borders expanded and kingdoms like the Huissa were completely absorbed, we still have a situation where the Mercian Eldermen typically were former members of a now-conquered royal dynasty who were still ruling over their former territory. It worked out well, but despite those benefits, this system also resulted in many of the larger Anglo-Saxon kingdoms like Mercia functioning more like a loose confederation rather than a firm top-down kingdom with one faction ruling exclusively. And as we've learned, that can lead to infighting and factionalism. Now contrast that with Wessex, especially Wessex after Egbert gained the throne. The West Saxons preferred direct intervention, 
And we saw that in how Egbert treated Kent when it was annexed. He just took over. And there's a certain degree of micromanagement that seems to be in play with West Saxon rule. But it paid off, since they were enjoying greater stability than Mercia had, and they even had managed to get the troublesome Archbishopric of Canterbury to play nice. And a big part of that had to do with their approach to nobility. Unlike Mercia and elsewhere, you wouldn't confuse a West Saxon elderman with a sub-king. Rather, Egbert's elderman would have been more like royal officials. So rather than ousted local royalty, these eldermen were favored members of the king's circle, and they had to have known that their power didn't come from an old blood right, but rather it came directly from the king. So instead of trying to hold together a confederation, Egbert was engaging in a sort of royal form of cronyism. This was a break from Anglo-Saxon tradition, which had spent centuries developing the right to rule through the consensus of the various supporting families. So if you had a predominance of various noble families and the right blood claim, you would have had the right to rule. But now, in Egbert's Wessex, rule was becoming closer to the top-down, absolute control style of kingship that was being developed across the channel. It wasn't about consensus and choosing the best person. The king was the best person by the sheer fact that he was the king. He was appointed by God, and his task was to carry out God's will on earth. Your duty was to help him in that task by being obedient to his demands. It was a big shift for the Anglo-Saxons, but it was completely in keeping with the Frankish concepts of nobility that Egbert had learned from Charlemagne. Wessex also saw a great proliferation of lower nobles under Egbert's rule. So he had an explosion of thanes, ministers, and that sort of thing. And while there were lesser nobles in other kingdoms like Mercia, these lesser nobles appear to have been more prominent in Wessex in a few very important ways. First, they were appointed by the king, which enhanced the king's power to buy influence. Second, the power that these lesser nobles held was determined by the amount of power that the king chose to delegate. Meaning that, as a thane, your authority was determined by the king's goodwill, or lack thereof. This gave the king a valuable tool to keep his lesser officials in line. And third, because the court was becoming a static location rather than a traveling group as it had been before the rise of a moneyed economy, those appointed officials would have had a place at court, and that also would have enhanced their prestige, while also serving the king's own interests since he could keep an eye on them. It was an ingenious system, because by handing out these lesser titles, it gave noble families a stake in the system. And they also had more to lose, since many of them now enjoyed a share of royal power. Not only that, but when rivalries sparked up, it would take the form of competition among the nobles for the best royal appointments. So Egbert's nobles were being incentivized to fight amongst themselves for a share of royal power, and also for proximity to the king, rather than for the kingdom itself. Now this isn't universal, by the way. Some territories did look a bit more independent than others, possibly because they'd only been recently annexed. But in general, the West Saxon method of rule that was used by Egbert and his dynasty was essentially a royal bureaucracy and that provided the king with a great deal more stability than the Mercian hegemony. So, if you're wondering what Egbert had been up to after he came back from exile in 802, after all, he was relatively quiet for his first 28 years, 
Now you know. He was doing the hard and relatively unglamorous work of nation-building. He was also becoming fantastically wealthy. While many of the kingdoms were more resource-starved than someone playing magic against a red deck, Egbert's conquests had brought him a great deal of land and treasure. And that will turn out to be vitally important for him going forward. And we'll cover more of that next time. Okay, if you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com. And if you'd like to prove to my dad that actually this is a thing that I'm doing, you can join us on Twitter. Just go to at British Podcast. And we're on just about everything else as well. So you're welcome to join us on Facebook and Tumblr. It's all there. And you can find links to all of it at thebritishhistorypodcast.com. All right, thanks for listening. <laughs>